The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hi, folks. I'm WWE Hall of Famer Hacksaw Jim Duggan. If you'd like hearing knock-knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother, go somewhere else! Oh! oh my god, this is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip Podcast. This is Cody Rhodes, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. Good, how you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man, what's going on? We ready to go, or what? Okay. This is a uh, special visitor, the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. It was a very rough feud to go through with Rick. It was a very bitter feud, too. He certainly didn't like me at that time, and I didn't like him, and we were both trying to be at the top. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid up, they knew they could kick the out of me. At this point, well, I'll be at a signing, and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. I go, wait a minute. You weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye. But yeah, bro, it's really flattering and, and amazing and humbling. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two Backside. 
just won't go away. Can you believe this idiot Hurricane is actually going for a choke slam? Yeah, there you go. Come on, Rock. Oh, hey! That, well, the notice qualification here. The Scorpion King's jewel. Oh, oh, touch slam! Touch slam! The touch slam! Cover it, kid! Cover it, kid! Make yourself famous! Hurricane to... Come on, Rock! Hurricane to make it the biggest name in his life! trip of wrestling i am your host jp john paz and on today's flagship episode part of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire stand back because there's a hurricane coming through as the former two-time wb world tag team champion two-time wb cruiserweight champion the wb european and hardcore champion former wcw cruiserweight and hardcore champion as well Shane Helms, a.k.a. Hurricane Helms, joins the show. It's been a long time in the making. Been trying to get him on the show for a long time. Finally get him on. Get him on for a very good and very lengthy interview here today. Just absolutely love getting the chance to talk to him about a myriad of topics. We'll kind of uh, start off with his last run in WB, which he was recently furloughed, and how it was not a release. It was more of a furlough, and he will not be headed back there anytime soon. We'll get into that. We'll talk all about the role of an agent and a producer. We'll talk all about Vincent Kennedy McMahon. We'll talk about, you know, what goes into uh, that role and being a part of WB behind the scenes. And how much influence does a road agent and a producer really have on the wrestlers and the matches, which I thought was a really interesting topic to talk about. We'll also talk about the world of WCW. We'll talk about Eric Bischoff, of course, Three Count, Shannon Moore, Evan Courageous, Jimmy Hart creating a theme song and some videos and you know, them being that crazy boy band that could work and they were great wrestlers we'll talk about the young dragons and that feud talk about sugar shane helms we'll talk about the innovation that he had the sensation of innovation that he was talk a little bit about chris canyon and that relationship and that friendship we'll talk about the matches with chavo guerrero we'll talk all about the wcw sale to wwf and his run there we'll talk all about how he was originally going to be hollywood helms and then he became hurricane helms and really what the collaboration or what his ideas were into that 
character and that gimmick. We'll talk all about that. Stephanie McMahon, Brian Gewertz, the Hurricane winning the European title, and then the tag title with not only Kane, but then with superhero in training Rosie. We'll talk about Super Stacy, Stacy Keebler. We'll talk about Mighty Molly, Molly Holly. And we'll talk about his entire run, including his feud with The Rock and defeating The Rock on Monday Night Raw. Talk about that, and trust me, folks, so, so much more to want to go on. I can keep going on here forever, but I don't want to because it's a very nice and lengthy interview I want to send you off to. Before I do that, I just want to mention a part of the TMPT podcasting empire is University of Dutch with Dutch Mantel over on the MLW Radio Network. Taskmaster Talks with Kevin Sullivan over on Creative Control. Talking Tough with Rick Bassman over on Podcast One. On our feed, we have the Taking to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard podcast. Then, of course, got to mention on Vince Russo's The Brand, we have Shane Douglas's Triple Threat podcast, as well as my show with PJ Palacco, a.k.a. Just Incredible, called Pro Wrestling 101. So you got so much going on, including Trump Mania, which is available on Omni Studios as well with the author Lobby Margolin. It's got so much great stuff uh, and more even than that coming down the pike very, very soon. So pay attention to the two-man power trip of wrestling as we've got a lot coming up for sure. Now I'm going to send it on over to some TMPT business and then on over to the interview with Sugar Shane, Shane Helms, a.k.a. Hurricane Helms. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Raslin Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes, including Bruno San Martino, Sean Michael, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk. Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Arn Anderson, and Glenn Kane Jacobs, and so many more. While you're on the web, visit ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. Visit our store, visit J.J. Dillon's store, Francine's store, and of course, the franchise Shane Douglas' store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player FM. For all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio. Spotify, iHeartRadio, Automatic, and now Stitcher. And of course, check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling. Stand back. There's a hurricane coming through.
Hello and welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. This is JP, a John Paz, and of course we are joined today by, it's going to be a long intro, so hold on one second here, a two-time WWE World Tag Team Champion, a two-time WWE Cruiserweight Champion, a WWE European and WWE Hardcore Champion, a former WCW Cruiserweight Champion, a former WCW Hardcore Champion, the innovator of offense, the vertebraker, Shane Helms, Mr. Hurricane Helms, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Uh, good, good to have you. Good to be on your show. I got, I got to correct on one thing though. The innovator of offense was Canyon. Yes, but you kind of. I, I, I was the sensation of innovation. That oh was, yes, true. That's true. what they called me there. And yes, that, that's true. Yep, you're that right. Was, that was one of the things that uh, made me and Canyon such great friends. That little uh, friendly competition we had. Yes. You know, it, and I, and so funny, too, because I wrote that note that you and Canyon were basically the innovators of offense in WCW, but you really, mm-hmm. a sensation of innovation is really the technical name. But man, <laughs> it, it, is it just because, uh, you know, is it something to do with the, the water down there in WCW? You guys were like, not only innovative where, you know, you see crazy moves, but there were awesome moves that were effective and using psychology. So what made you and Canyon kind of uh, kindred spirits in that way? Uh, I mean, that was just my mindset. You know, I've always been a creative guy, uh, and I carried that on through the Indies. I mean, I started wrestling in 1991, so uh, even by the time I got to WCW, I had already created uh, quite a handful of new moves anyway. And that was, like I said, that was just one of the things that uh, kind of brought me and Canyon together when we first became friends. It was like, well, you made that? Oh, yeah, well, I made this. And then you made that, and I made this. And, uh, and it was one of the things I respected about him before I even knew him as a person. One of the things I respected about him as a performer, to this day, is something I respect. If I see somebody going out there, and they're consistently creating new stuff, like uh, it's just something that catches my eye. So what have you been up to lately? I know you got the podcast. You got so much going on. But what have you been up to? Uh, well, I mean, if you're referring to the COVID era, my ass has been staying home. There's been a lot of staying at home. Uh, I did uh, basically one one appearance, uh, which is about two weeks ago, and that's the first thing I've did since. Uh, I mean, I got furloughed from WWE in April. It's the first thing, so that's the first thing. I, and I hadn't left my house maybe a month before that. You know, but there's about four four weeks, maybe five weeks when uh, I hadn't done anything anyway. It was, so when the furlough happened, I, I was not very surprised. It's like just common sense. Like they're not going to pay me to sit at home forever, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but you know, um, I just kind of been uh, chilling, you know, I'm in a very fortunate situation in terms of, of my home life and stuff like that. Uh, and just kind of taking advantage of the time with the kids and the family. So, you know, uh, just being cognizant of the fact that I'm in a much uh, better situation than some people and, you know, uh, being, you know, thankful for that, but, at the same time, I, you know, I, I don't want to throw it in people's face. And anytime you say something like that to me, it always comes off, hey, just pat yourself on the back, buddy, while all these other people are <laughs> suffering. I don't want to come off like that guy. Right. But uh, I am very cognizant of the fact that uh, I'm you know, in a pretty good spot. So when you were furloughed uh, from WB and you got your release, you're technically agent, producer, was a SmackDown Raw. What was your role with WB? I was mainly on Raw and I would do most of the live events and all the pay-per-views. So it, do you, like, I'm always curious about this. I talked to Mike Rotunda about this recently too. It's like, do you have specific guys that you only work with or is that, that's not even, that's not the way it is there. It's, it's much more of like a team effort. Um, you know, like I said, I, I was only there for a year. So I really had got to a point like that. Yeah. I mean, I know there were certain guys that I definitely worked better with 
but it wasn't like, hey, we're going to give you this guy all the time. I know uh, in the beginning with Otis um, from Heavy Machinery, I had mm-hmm. I had those guys for maybe five or six weeks, and I was specifically helping Otis develop. You know, uh, let's let's start this shape, but let's let's start upping it every week, every time, and um, so helping him out with that character. I think over time, the and what at least what I would have done is figure out what agents are good at and and highlight that with particular talents that might need their help. Uh, to give you an, uh, an instance, you know, if you're a baby face and this was going from a time before when I was there as a talent, if I was a baby face, having Ricky Steamboat as an agent was invaluable. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. uh, on Anderson, maybe being a baby face wasn't quite his wheelhouse. When I was Gregory Helms, the heel, I wanted on Anderson every single time as my as my agent. You know, because that's where he excelled the best. So uh, there's a lot of agents that, you know, ha- have their strengths and weaknesses. And, um, you know, it, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do all the time. But if you can match up that agent with the perfect talent, that makes things a little easier. Absolutely. And I'm just like thinking of an agent and their role. Do they control a lot of what you see? Because let's just say, you know, on TV now you see maybe some spots are just like questionable or or maybe guys kind of going a little too crazy and maybe not the flips and the flops, but maybe just no psychology, no selling stuff. Does an agent control any of that or it's just kind of here's the finish. Here's what we need to do. Like what's the agent's role in, in producing the matches? Uh, I mean, you give them your input. The agent's role is you take what creative wants and you tell the talent. And hopefully the talent can listen to what you say and go out there and do it. Uh, and it's what it's a it's a thankless job because if the talent goes out there and kill it, they get all the credit. If the talent goes out there and it's rotten, the agent catches all the heat. So it's mm-hmm. a really difficult position to, to maintain uh, from a mental standpoint. And how some of the long-term guys ha- didn't just snap is just beyond me. Um, you know, it, it, and I'll, that really depends on the talent. Going back to your question, there are some guys that you really don't have to micromanage at all. There are some talent that you do need to micromanage. It just disp- depends on the specific talent because there are some people you can say, hey, this is what we want. They got it right away and they can go out and knock it out of the park. Some people, especially with younger talent, you know, it's like, well, why, why would I do this? Why would I do that? And you got to kind of coach them and get them there. Sometimes it's like, wow, you know, you see some agents, you're like, wow, I can't, that guy, you know, he's an agent. Don't know if he's specific to that match, but you're just like, I can't believe I see some of the stuff I'm seeing in the ring and just some of the craziness when that guy is an agent. So I'm always curious, like, do they have as much impact on what we see in the ring? And, and do they get maybe yelled at or something in the back if something happens in the ring? That Oh, yeah. oh they get yelled at all the time. They'll get okay. yelled at while this shit's going on. You'll get yelled <laughs> out. You'll get yell, yelled out while it's happening. And then when the talent comes back, everybody acts like everything's okay. Oh, yeah, that was great. And I've seen that happen, not just in uh, WWE. I've seen it happen in other companies as well. It's just uh, it's a weird thing. You know, it's um, like I say, it's, it's a hard job to manage. Um, but it just goes with the talent because sometimes there are talent that will say, yeah, I got it. Uh, I'll do that. And then they go out there and they do something completely different. And you're on that headset going, what in the fuck is going on? <laughs> what is happening here? And you can't, you're helpless in those moments, you know. But for me, that was very few and far between. Um, you know, everybody I worked with up there was, you know, very cordial. And, and so I came from, uh, you know, I had a really good run there in WWE. So a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of the talent I worked with trusted me and trusted my input. So I don't have any really bad stories. 
do you sit with Vince? You know, you always see that on, on the, you know, on the videos and the behind the scenes stuff, like some of the agents sit with Vince. Is that every agent during their specific match or that's only the, the, the head agent, maybe Johnny Ace or whoever is the head agent of that night? No, you got um, Vince has his own monitor. And then there's a couple other monitors that, you know, you, you can't really see him. He's out of your peripheral. He's to the right. And his you can see the back of his monitor. He's on the other side watching. I think okay. Vince kind of wants to see it just himself, you know. Okay. So who's ever sitting next to him isn't the agent of the match. It's you know, no, sometimes that was sometimes that was just the head of the show, like uh for Raw, Paul Heyman would be beside him a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that that's generally who it was. Whoever was uh, the head writer or head of creative was there beside him. What's Vince like? I mean, you've obviously been a longtime wrestler for Vince, and then he said for you know an agent for a year. What's he like behind the scenes? Any different when you're an agent and when you're a wrestler? Uh, not not too much. You know, he's about the same. I think uh, the way he handles talent, uh, as far as the wrestlers, is a little bit different than the way he handles producers. Uh, and what he expects from them is different. You know, uh, as a talent, he wants you to stand up for yourself. To don't you know he's looking for leaders in, in that aspect. Uh, being an agent, you're more of a yes man to a degree, and so sometimes uh, and this might not have helped me. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. You know, I might have been too vocal about things. Um, and but you know, it's just a learning process. But as far as Vince goes, uh, Vince to me has always been straight up. You know, I never got a sideways answer from him in any regard. And uh, I mean, even. Uh, since, since I got furloughed, I've had a couple of text conversations with him. And, uh, I mean, he's the boss, you know, and like any job, when the work's going good, the boss is happy. You're happy. If the job isn't going good and the boss is upset, you know, that could make the uh, relationship a little stressful. Uh, but it just depends on, on how the work goes. I mean, anytime somebody's saying something bad about Vince, it's because they either got fired or they didn't like their experience there. Uh, right. if, if they had a great time there, they speak great of him. And to me, I'm like, yeah, that's like every job. You know, like, that's every job. You know, yep. if, you, if you enjoy your job and, you know, you're having a good time, you'll like that boss. It, it could be a great job, but if you don't like it, you can find reasons to hate anybody. Yeah, it's true. You don't hear like the the longtime employees, you know, even Jerry Briscoe or Gary or something. You don't hear them ripping on Vince ever. You know, no. what I mean? yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. I mean, like the day. I mean, as soon as I got furloughed, I was like, yeah. I mean, I get it. You know, I wouldn't pay my ass to sit at home either. <laughs> yep. uh, so, was there official like release after the furlough? No, I was never because I had a talent contract and I was actually in transition to be an employee. So I wasn't even a full time employee yet. So. uh that was uh, just kind of unfortunate timing. Like, had I been an employee already, uh, I might not even got for a load. But because I was in that transition phase where this guy's not even an employee yet. And, of course, the, the idea is to bring me back. So mm-hmm. um, it's just, you know, one, one of those things. Were you going to be an on-screen talent before, you know, you kind of became a producer? Were they going to use you as a wrestler? Or were they going to use you as a manager? No, just the, ta- just the contract was kind of the same. It was kind of the same thing as what I had before. Uh, you know, and so, you know, then they came out with the action figures of me, uh, you know, the, the elite gimmick here. Oh, yeah. So, um, awesome figure, yeah. so I don't know if, if the other guys had the same type of contract I had or if there was something different because of that. Because, you know, they brought a group of us in at the same time and I was the only one that ended up with an action figure or something like that. So I don't know if it was exactly the same. I don't see how it could have been. But because, uh, I mean, I had a pre-existing character and merchandising a deal with WWE. So it was just, um, 
I had to go from one contract to another. And during that time is when the furlough happened. So I definitely want to get into WCW because I'm a huge WCW mark, but I do want to kind of get into the hurricane. You're mentioning that figure. It's almost like the perfect character, like to me of a, of a WWE guy, they look at him like, wow, looks like a comic book character. Uh, you know, he's obviously, you know, he can work in the ring. He can talk, you know, he, he's funny. He can connect with the crowd, but they can make his action figure. They can make the mask. They can make the cape. I mean, how did the hurricane character come about? Because originally were you going to be Greg Helms? Or were you going to be Hollywood Helms? You're going to be something yeah, else, yeah, like yeah. right before the, before you became the Hurricane. Yes, yeah, so, I mean I was Sugar Shane, of course, in WCW, and mm -hmm. I mean I was never a comedy guy at all. You know, no, I mean with yeah. three count, kind of dabbled bit. in it yeah, mm -hmm. a little bit with three count, but it was still one of those things where it was very subtle, you know. Um, and so that was just kind of my like dipping my toes in the water in terms of being a character because before that you know i was a wrestler and i grew up wanting to just be a wrestler a wrestler's wrestler i'm an nwa kid you know i didn't grow up in the wwf world where everybody had an occupation you had a plumber <laughs> yeah. a hockey player and all that type of stuff yeah. that's not what i came up on and i have a good amateur background i was seven years as an amateur so that's the type of wrestling i wanted to, to do and you saw that with sugar shane especially once i got away from three count you saw the real Shane Helms that existed in the Indies before WCW. That was me coming, you know, back to doing what I wanted to do. And you saw it when I turned heel as Gregory Helms, too. You saw that. Yep. Um, but then I get to WWE, uh, WWF at the time. I can't be Shane because of Shane McMahon, which I understand. There was never any heat, uh, although, you know, uh, I think some wrestling fans feel like there should be. But the, to me, there's not. It's one thing you learn when you're a writer and you know, I've taken several writing course, courses, just finished one recently. You don't want to have characters of the same name. You know, in books, it's even more confusing. In TV, sometimes you can get away with it if you got a Chris Jericho and a Chris Benoit, but they refer to them as Jericho and Benoit almost 99% of the time. You know, right. very rarely were, you know, was it just, hey, Chris, Chris, Chris. So I understood that, that I wasn't going to be Shane. I was hoping I could keep Helms, but I was concerned about that because Triple H had Helmsley, but he was still, he was at that point, he was legit Triple H. They, nobody referred to him as Hunter Harris Helmsley anymore. So I was able to keep Helms and they wanted to call me by my shoot first name, which is Gregory. I wasn't a big fan of that. I've never gone by Gregory and there was no hook to it. Hmm. At that time, coming into WWE, what a lot of fans don't realize is that the WWE audience in certain parts of the country had no clue who the WCW guys were. They just didn't know. Might have, maybe if you were at the top of that WCW card, but I was not <laughs> at the top of that <laughs> WCW card. Right. And, and I knew that. And they did have an idea to call me Hollywood Helms. Uh, and that was kind of more because of what they saw with the Sugar Shane character when I would come out with the girl, with the Nitro Girls, uh, which we called the Sugar Babies at the time. Oh, yeah. You know, I would kind of dance on the ramp, then go down there, a little flamboyant with it. And so they were wanting to play off of that. And, um, but I just heard Hollywood and I was just mean to me going, well, I mean, Hulk Hogan was just Hollywood Hogan, you know, I don't want, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was some gigantic shoes to feel and he really killed as Hollywood Hogan. That was huge. I'm like, and two, I just kind of thought of, you know, like nothing about, I got to, I'm very aware of how crazy my accent sounds and it doesn't sound like anything when you think of Hollywood, you know, just to me, I just I just wasn't on board for it. And I just like I asked him, could I try to figure out something else? But they called me Gregory Helms the first night. I was on a plane ride home, writing down every name I almost used in the Indies, all these other names I could have thought about. 
And I was the hurricane kid briefly, maybe in 1992, maybe 93. I forget what year it was. But um, so I went back to him next week and I got to the building early before the production meeting started, before catering, anything had opened. I got there that early and I saw Stephanie McMahon coming in. Stephanie was the one who had told me the week before about the Gregory Helms thing and all of that. And I just went and said, hey, what do you guys think about Hurricane Helms? And she goes, you really don't want to be Gregory, do you? And I said, I said, it just doesn't have a hook. And I used those exact words. And when I said that, she was like, hmm. This kid's not an idiot, which that was a good, you know, that was a good sign. And so then she goes to the uh, production meeting. I go to catering, whatever. A couple hours later, they're done. And Vince McMahon, I see Vince walking down the hall and he goes, Hurricane Helms. I like it. And that was it. Nice. Nice. Yeah, then I was, uh, but I still was Sugar Shane style. The little trunks, the little shiny uh, robe type thing. Uh, The the outfit with the uh, actual superhero idea came uh, maybe a month or so later. Is that you creating it? Is it collaborating with Stephanie and the writing team? And who creates the Hurricane character and the gimmick? The uh, head writer was a guy named Brian Groys at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. You know, he's he's helped so many guys. Uh, Edge, Edge and Christian, Rock. I mean, just there's a slew of guys that he was the guy that he worked for. And I knew Brian only briefly, just conversations. I don't really know him as uh, well at all. But I wore... Uh, comic book shirts all the time. I got the Green Lantern tattoo on my shoulder. And I think Brian had always wanted to do a superhero type character, but just had never really pulled the trigger on it. You know, I don't know if he was there during the Blue Blazer era or not. I think that was even before him. You know, and the Blue Blazer kind of dabbled on it, but it wasn't full force that this guy's a superhero. You know what I'm saying? Yep. But, um, and I'm not even sure that that's the way they were going to go with me at first. But Stephanie, uh, you know, Brian pitched the idea. Stephanie came to me again um, and it developed over a couple of weeks because I was in the Alliance and it was, um, you know, there was like a stone cold appreciation night where I gave Steve Austin my Green Lantern shirt. Uh, there was what it started. I remember the first thing started, I had to do a backstage uh, skit with Austin and he was going to ask me about my tattoo. And that's all I knew that we were going to talk about. Like he was going to ask me about my tattoo and I say something and they were very loose with the verbiage, you know, Steve, can, I mean, Steve can say whatever he wants, you know, mm, yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping I don't mess up. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm nervous as hell about this whole situation. And I just started talking about the green lantern. Like it was a real person. And I don't know why it was just what to me felt funny and entertaining at the time. And in the, in the comic books, green lantern, uh, maybe a year before that had a big heel turn where he became parallax. And there was a famous issue where he dropped Superman with one punch. And so when Austin started asking me about it, I go, yeah, he knocked Superman out one punch, bam. And I don't know why I talk like that. Yeah, I don't, you know, no superhero talk like the Hurricane talked, but it's just the way it came out. And Deborah was in the room and Deborah started laughing and Steve's like looking at her and he's playing off her and it just worked. And so I had a couple of weeks where I would do stuff like that, where they were like, yeah, just, uh, just doing your promo, but then go off into some comic book stuff. And that would kind of be the general direction. So I know there's one too. I was talking about Michael to Michael Cole. And I was like, that reminds me of the time that the green lantern. And I don't even know what the hell I said, but it was just me throwing out random comic book stuff. And they really liked it. And then uh, Stephanie come up to me one week and go, we're thinking about making you a superhero. (laughs) And I I remember going, yeah. And she goes, yeah, like with a cape and a mask and uh, everything. What do you think about that? And keep in mind, I had the little trunks on at the time, like these little small ass Randy Orton type trunks. And I'm going, mm-hmm. 
I was like, well, I'm basically in my underwear now. So, so whatever y'all want, I'll give it a shot. And um, that was it. The next week I came out in the uh, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan was the town. I do remember that. I won the European title in the debut of the hurricane. But that was, uh, you know, mo nobody understands just what I went through when I put that outfit on for the first time. And I was walking down that hall and you could see all the guys looking at me and some of them are like, what the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> you know, even my friends were like, wow, man, you know, uh, they're encouraging, but nobody knew if it was going to work, you know, and it, that was, that was a lonely night that night, you know, but it went out, you know, uh, everything kind of worked and just over the weeks as the fans took to it more and more and they took to it because they could tell I was committed. That was the key. I knew that. I knew that from three counts. You know, three count work because I was committed to me singing and dancing. I didn't want anybody to think I was laughing at the gimmick. When I was right. in three count, I was committed to it. I was dancing my ass off trying to sing. I can't sing. I could dance a little bit, but I would intentionally not be good sometimes. But I didn't want to give off that I was doing it on purpose. I would try to let them know that I was trying to be good. And the hurricane was the same, same thing. I had to believe in the gimmick to make the fans believe. So who's coming up with, you know, stand back, there's a hurricane coming through and, you know, catchphrases and things like that. Like, are they trusting in you or you're collaborating still? Or or it's like they kind of go to you. It's like, okay, you're you're the character. You're the hurricane. What do you got? Uh, it was just, it was a lot of collaboration, but I would just say stuff. And if people popped, I kept it. Like I would do, the, you know, what, what's up with that? Like, I don't know why I said <laughs> yeah, that for yeah, the first time, yeah. but I did. And everybody laughed. So like, oh, okay, I need, might need to keep that. And then uh, the first time I did, there's a hurricane coming through. It was actually, I said, excuse me. It was, uh, there was something, it was like Matt, I think Matt and Jeff and Lita were talking to Kurt Angle. And I came through the, um, in catering and I come through and this is a skit backstage. And I was like, excuse me, there's a hurricane coming through. And when I said that, I was talking that Shane McMahon was kind of watching it. I don't know if he was producing the segment, but he was watching it. And I remember him popping over it and thinking that was funny. And so that was going to be my deal. And then uh, I don't know who, who thought it at Stand Back, but if you remember, Vince sang the song Stand Back on the Power Driver album. Oh, so yeah. whether, it was next, whether it was the next week or the week after that, um, Vince had me, they had this uh, audio thing set up where I would record the Stand Back, and Vince actually produced that. And he has such a powerful voice. His voice is so much more powerful than mine is. I'm generally kind of soft-spoken. And he would come in there and be like, stand back. And, he, and I'd be yelling that as hard as I could. <laughs> He'd be like, no, do it one more time. And really get in there, stand back. And I was like, Vince, this is all I got. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm giving it everything. But uh, it, a lot of that stuff uh, you come up with on the fly. I know the pose, I was just trying to make a hurricane symbol, you know, with my arm. Like this arm would be like this and this arm would be back. So I was making like the hurricane symbol. That's where that came from. And. Like on a house show one time, uh, it started with Big Show. I gave him like a, a shoulder tackle. He didn't budge. So I did the pose and I started winding up and I heard the fans start to pop. And that's something where um, you, when you get to the point where you can hear the crowd and feel them and stuff like that, you go, you learn to what they react to, you keep. And yeah. that was a lesson uh, Pat Patterson uh, you told me too. He goes, on these house shows, you try everything. He said, what they react for, you keep. If they don't react, fuck it. <laughs> and it's such a simplistic but brilliant piece of advice. 
Because I'll see people going out there and they're doing all this type of shit. And sometimes nobody's reacting. I was like, well, who are you doing this for? Right. The crowd, the crowd doesn't give a shit. Who are you doing it for? It's a little different on television, but um, on the house show specifically. So I would hear him rumble about certain things, you know, doing the pose and just trying to add different little things. Because you have to keep in mind, I had nobody, I had no guideline to go by here. The only other character that was as, as, as extreme as that was Undertaker. He's the only character was that was that's fantastic, mm-hmm. um, you know. Especially coming out of the uh, the Attitude Era, where everything was just edgy and adult, you know. Um, to to have those two really fantastic characters, he was the only thing I had to play off, and he had a much different push than the Hurricane oh, yeah. did. So yeah. he's the only thing I got to go by. But we're working under really different parameters, and none of the agents were characters. So the agents didn't really have any good advice. Sometimes they had the worst advice for me. You know, I saw just Slaughter helped a lot because Slaughter uh, had, had a couple good, you know, years as different characters, uh, you know, himself. But it was so much of me just trying, trying, trying different things and, and sticking with what worked. But it was it was vastly difficult than most people realize. I had way more challenging things to deal with. Than the, than the average WWE performer by far. So when you're, you know, kind of coming up with the concept and the character, and they're on board with it, who's like the character, like the character's colors, for instance, that's just going to be Green Lantern. That's automatically going to be green. The the mask, like who, like who's kind of thinking of the mask, the cape, the colors, all that stuff. Uh, well, I was just going to pattern it after the Green Lantern because I had been talking about that on television since I had the tattoo. Uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, the Green Lantern was my hero. And then my hero became Steve Austin. Well, I can't use Steve Austin colors because um, <laughs> they're just black. <laughs> so there's not a lot of not a lot to choose from there. So I uh, just kind of stuck with that, just for the consistency of that story. You know, I mean, there's a ton of superheroes that I love. You know, the Green Lantern's not my number one shocker uh, to any fan that might be disappointed by that. But just for the consistency of that story, I stuck with the green. Uh, they brought me a, a really cheap mask the first night. It was. Um, a lone ranger mask from party city it was a piece of shit and i was just going wow and that was the first thing the first like creative conversation i ever, I ever had with vince i went to him and i was like this mask isn't so i don't think this mask is going to work you know you got to wait to pick your spot with vince too you know because there's eight million people trying to talk to him during the day and i got to go to him and complain about my mask on the night i'm going to debut so i'm all fucking pins and needles nervous about it and I go to him, I was like, I don't think this mask is going to work. And he immediately thinks I'm not into the gimmick. You know, he goes, well, why? You don't want to wear a mask? And I could I could detect that in his mm-hmm. tone. I was like, no, no, I just don't want to wear this mask. Like, this is going to fall off in 10 seconds and it's going to look like I'm not committed. Mm-hmm. I was like, and I, I have to be committed to this. And so then that, that put him at ease. He's like, okay, okay. He goes, so what about makeup? And this is the best part. It's one of my favorite event stories ever. I go, like the Road Warriors? He goes, like the Ultimate Warrior. <laughs> I was going, okay. If I can Ultimate Warrior then, you know? And I go, I go, yes, I can do that. I said, is there somebody that can do it for me? And he told me about, he goes, yeah, go to Jan the makeup room. And tell her, I, I want you in a superhero type hurricane makeup. And I go, okay. And I'm walking away going, what the fuck does that mean, superhero type hurricane makeup? You know, no superheroes wear makeup. What's he talking about? But I go to her and I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, uh, just kind of like a mask. And I said, this is the mask they had. This thing sucks. And so Jan just kind of did like, she would put like little swirls on the makeup and it made it look like something. It was, so it was better than nothing. 
And that's what I did on TV for a couple of weeks until I got the leather mask. But when I had the makeup on uh, at TV, it would look great because Jan would do it. Jan actually works for AEW now and it would look fantastic. On the house shows, I'd have to do it by myself, and it looked like a child did it, which kind of sort of did. It's kind of sort of exactly what the fuck was happening. But, um, and then, like, I wanted the mask. I did want a leather, like, Batman-looking uh, mask. And uh, Terry, the seamstress Terry Anderson, who still works for WWE, uh, she's the one that hooked me up with that guy. And we kind of did the straps in the back, like Vader. I wanted that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where that kind of that kind of style of mask came from. Cause I didn't, I, I wanted to cut my hair. Uh, I still had long hair at the time and with the mask, I didn't want to be Kane. So I, I, didn't, I didn't want to have that look of Kane. So I would still keep the ponytail. But then like with the Velcro straps and all the leather, like my hair was just getting ripped to shreds all the time. And so that's when I ended up going to the green hair. And like at first it was just like little green tips. I just wanted to add something to it because it was just kind of bland. And then we just went full blown bright out bright green. But at that time they kind of just let a lot of the talents uh, work on their own uh, look, unless it was something that the company wanted. They they kind of gave me some freedom, you know. I think they they could tell I was invested in this character, and they could tell that I liked it, and they could tell I knew about the comic world. So um, why you know why have somebody that doesn't know shit about comics come and give me advice on what a superhero looks like? I love that he can't say he's Road Warrior. It's got to be his creation of the Ultimate Warrior. That's who he wants you to look like. It is awesome. Yeah, that, that's what popped me to this day. That was in there in 2001, and I can still remember that to this day. Love that. What, what a nut. I love it. He's crazy. Like the Ultimate Warrior. Warrior. And I was like, oh, all right, calm down. <laughs> now, who is the See, if I would have said if I would have said Legion of Doom, Mm-hmm. I told I told Tommy that story. Tommy goes, you should have said Legion of Doom. I go, ah, Oh yeah, I, true. Yeah. If I said Legion of Doom, I could have got away with it. Yeah, see, he only likes his own creations, apparently. Yes. You, you can't say, you know, somebody else. So who's your number one that you said uh, Green Lantern isn't? I'm shocked by that. Who's oh, Black one? Adam. Oh Black okay. Adam's my favorite comic character of all time. And it's such a weird twist of cosmic fate that my nemesis, uh, the rock, is going to be Black Adam and he's going to be perfect for it. I'm so excited for that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. What do you think about when you started feuding with The Rock? I just always remember you going for that choke slam. It's just, I don't know, it's just so funny, like on, on a bigger guy. I love that. Or, you know, when you had you know, two bigger guys, uh, what was it? Austin? Yeah. Was it Austin and, and Perfect? I'm trying to remember uh, who the two, or no, Austin, Austin Triple H. Yeah. Wasn't it? You yeah. had them both. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I don't know. I just, I always love that because it's so funny. So, what, you know, what about The Rock and, and kind of feuding with him and going through that? Because you do end up getting a victory, pinfall victory over The Rock. Yeah, I mean, I just felt that kid needed a rub. You know, I saw mm-hmm. a bright yep. future for him, and I was just trying to help him out. That's just it. Yeah. Now, that was just an organic thing. The first backstage skit we did was in Toronto, and that was all it was ever going to be was that first night. And um, it just – that that skit went so well, that backstage promo with us. And uh, then we – there was a battle royal later that night too. And the rocks in there giving a smackdown to this guy, giving a smackdown to that guy. And then he comes to get me and I block it and start firing back. And you can just feel it. The crowd just come. Oh, shit. Like, you know, just it was one of those very organic things. And 
after it was over, I was excited, but I thought that was going to be it. You know, there were no plans for it. Nothing was discussed. Hey, we're going to do this, this, and this, and this for the next couple of weeks. None of that. It was just going to be that night. But, and so when I'm done with it, I'm, I'm happy because I know, I know the skit killed. Everybody was talking about the skit uh, when we were done with that. But then after the interaction we had in the Battle Royal, which was our first physical contact, um, I was excited about that, but you don't know if they heard that because up in Gorilla, when you got the headsets on, sometimes you can't hear the crowd as much as, as you can when you're in the ring, of course. And so I was like, man, and sometimes creative just doesn't pick up on it. They just don't, you know, mm-hmm. so there's been yep. a lot of cool things when you go to the back and like, man, something else going to happen. And then it doesn't. So I didn't know. But uh, luckily they did. They did pick up on it that night. And uh, more importantly, Rock did. Rock picked up on it. And so uh, we just week after week, we were doing these promos. And that was so much freedom with the, with the two of us. Like when Rock picked out his phone and go, hey, it's nothing. He says he knows you. That was my line. Like I gave him that line. Yeah, they, they they didn't. It wasn't a lie for me, but he was gonna he was gonna say I was five foot nothing, a hundred pounds of nothing, and I just said I asked him was like, hey, do you got your cell phone? He goes, he goes, yeah. And like I said, say it's nothing. He knows you. And he goes, oh. <laughs> so we had that back and forth, you know that you know we had good chemistry, and he appreciated that too because I I knew I'm getting the rub here without a shadow of a damn doubt. So yep. I don't care who comes up with the line. I don't care who says the line. I want these segments to kill. If they kill, it's going to make us both look good. Um, Absolutely. And then it led to the match. And, uh, you know, you want to talk about pressure. <laughs> now, that was some pressure. I've uh, Not one, I've uh, explained this to people and, and I've asked them, I said, who do you think the pressure was on? And they're like, uh, I mean, I, I don't know, Rock. And I'm like, wow, he's going to WrestleMania. That match could have been terrible. He still would have been a Rock. Yep. If that match is terrible, you're never going to see Hurricane again. <laughs> right, right. True. Like, 100% of the pressure's on me. I got to go out there with a top guy, one of the top guys, one of the most popular guys to ever do it. And now we know one of the most popular people to ever exist on the damn planet. Yep. You know, um, but I, so I got to go out there and, and carry all of that weight. So, but it, it went, you know, super good. And, uh, you know, he loved it and I loved it. And it's just, it's one of those matches that people still talk about. They call it a mini feud. And um and and it was because of the, the duration, but I'm like, it's weird that a mini feud, the memory of a mini feud lasts longer than most of the major feuds. Right. Right. Yeah. So many people remember that feud. And the thing is, you guys did have great chemistry. It's that easy because it's the rock or it's not easy because it's the rock. You know what I mean? Like sometimes it could be harder because of who he is and how popular he is. I'm I, I'm like my style. I was very adaptable. I mean, uh, not to pat myself on the ass too much, but you never saw me strike out. That's mm-hmm. one thing I always say, where, no matter where I was at on the card. And we can argue about how what my success was, but I never struck out at base. I could adapt to anybody. And I was very proud of that. The way I trained myself coming up, I didn't want to be I didn't want to be, you know, reg- regulated or reg- whatever I was trying to say to just one style. You know, if you wanted to do some Lucha stuff, I got you. If you want to do mat based stuff, I got you. If you want to do comedy, I can do that. You want to get serious. I can do that. I was very adaptable in that sense. So, um, and and Rocky's good. I mean, that's the thing. If you got two talented people in there, it, it's a little bit easier. You know, that's the thing when I, when we tell everybody our toughest match, here's a little insider secret for you guys. Our toughest match, it's never really our toughest match. Mm-hmm. The toughest match is when you're in there with somebody that sucks. That's right. when it's hard. That's when it's difficult. 
you know, so if you ask me my toughest match, I gotta say The Rock, and I gotta say Undertaker and Matt Hardy and Jeff Hardy and all these people, but no, they were physical, you know, a lot of shit in those matches hurt, but they weren't tough, tough in terms of the performance. What suck, you know, when it's tough, is going out there with somebody that doesn't belong in the ring and having to having to dig a performance out of that. That's when it's tough. Rock was super talented, and it was easy. Anybody you can think of, like, you didn't have good chemistry chemistry with that was tough to get a good match out of? I mean, uh, there was a few, but it was, it was a lot of the guys because they were young at the time, you know, um, stuff like that. You know, I remember one time I was in the ring, and John Heidenreich's coming to the ring, and the referee comes over and goes, "You guys got ninety seconds." And I go, "What?" And it was it was supposed to be like a five or six minute match, and it's cut to ninety seconds. And I don't know why. I don't know if it was a test to see if I could pull it out or what. And I was just going, "What?" And I got to talk, and I got to talk this guy through a ninety second match, which that might seem like a short amount of time unless you're in there with an incredibly powerful human being that is capable of snapping your neck. It mm. can get difficult at times, but on the big stage in the big companies, I don't have any you know, memories of like, oh, my God, this is just tough. You know, La Resistance was pretty young when they started. So uh, some of those matches were kind of ugly at times on the house shows. Um, but for, for the most part, I was very adaptable. And there was, you know, I mean, and no matter if I didn't like the creative behind the match once that camera's on, I'm going to go out there and, and do my absolute best anyway. I'm not going to go out there and sandbag anybody or anything like that. I don't believe in that. And I've seen people do it, but it's not something I believe in. And as you're kind of going along, you know, you'll have Kane as a tag partner and you guys will, will win the, the tag titles. What was it like kind of, because as a fan, you never know. It's like, okay, they win tag titles. It means something to you. It probably means nothing to the wrestlers. When you're, they're giving you belts, like you said, you were European champ as Hurricane's first night. Did it mean anything mm-hmm. winning the belts to the actual guys, to, the, to yeah. you as the actual wrestler? So, some of them they do. You know, of course, the European was a get-over title to help uh, the audience realize that the company was behind me and stuff like that. But there are some titles that you actually do, you know, you work for and you, and when you get them, it is an accomplishment because there is a competition, you know, the competition it is backstage that you get the, and that's what I think those championships meant the most, you know, uh, we've kind of really did our business a disservice by, you know, hop, hop scotching and hop frogging the titles around as much as, as has been done sometimes. Yep. Um, but, you know, my favorite actually championship I ever won was me and Rosie because I don't think it was ever in the plans for us to be the tag team champions, you know, but we worked so hard. You know, I got him out of that SHIT costume. Yep. Uh, me and an artist, uh, Mike Bo- Michael Borkowski from Syracuse, we designed his outfit for him, the new one, um, you know, with the big R and everything like that and tried to and, – and, man, we worked hard. We worked hard, came up with all these new moves and different stuff and we got over and we're killing on house shows. We're doing good merchandise. And there's all these things where like, man, we should be the tag champs. We'll, you know, we're putting in the work. We got over. And so when we, when they finally did put them on us, man, we came to the back and it was like the whole locker room was there waiting for us, you know? And so there are moments when you do win those championships and they do mean something. And it's funny because, you know, the superhero in training is kind of like a jokey thing. and But it really shows you and it shows me as fans like, wow, they have a lot of faith and confidence in the Hurricane. You know, they have Mighty Molly. Like you almost you know, have like a, a stable. So it's like, wow, they're creating characters based off of this guy. They must have a lot of faith in this guy and he must yeah. be over. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, my my the strength of my character created three different characters: so Mighty exactly. Molly, Super Stacy, and uh, the superhero training version. Yep. That was all the strength of my character, you know. So, um, I was doing something right somewhere. Yeah, I, I always think about that. It's like, wow, you know, you think of like who's like kind of the leader of the stable or who are the offshoots, you know, who who's being created off that character. And it was all created off, off the hurricane. So is this at one point where, you know, they're looking strong in you? Are they going to give you a bigger push or are you kind of stuck in a certain spot and you're not going to be getting a bigger push? There were certain uh, people in creative and in the office that felt that the superhero could only go so far. And, you know, uh, I kind of see where they're coming from. But at the same time, if you look at, you know, what superheroes have done in Hollywood, obviously there's a huge market for uh, people that like that yep. uh, so, sort of character. Um, but still, I was constantly fighting that battle. And, there, and, there, and because I got so good at the comedy, they would sometimes forget the wrestler that Shane Holmes is. And that was always the struggle that I was dealing with to a point where I remember Ric Flair talking to me one time and he's like, you're too good for this gimmick. You know, because of course, Ric Flair's an interviewer guy. He's a wrestler. He knows how I could wrestle and stuff like that. Because we would work on house shows and I was out there doing all this stuff with Ric Flair's and fans are loving it, but they're not going to let Hurricane do that on television. So he understood the challenges, you know, and I, I was so blessed to have a, a Ric Flair give me that kind of guidance. And that's when Gregory Helms came, the heel came about was, was shortly thereafter. You know, I, it just, I, I felt I had to remind these people of the performer that I really was because they were lost in the comedy. Same thing that happened to Jerry Lawler. Like people don't understand how good Jerry Lawler was uh, before he became the commentator, funny guy in WWE. I mean, Jerry Lawler was amazing. Mm -hmm. and, and taken very seriously but he got so good at the ha-ha and then like it's the same thing in hollywood comedy you know you hardly ever are going to see a comedy get the oscar although it might sell the most tickets it might be the movie that people love the most they won't give the comedies the the accolades they won't get the awards you know i remember steve martin talking about how eddie murphy and it was in one of the nutty professors where he played every character around the dinner table oh yeah yep. and he was like and Steve Martin was just going on, to, not necessarily a rant, but he was going on a diatribe about it. And it was just like, how does he not get an award for that? Like, that's the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. And so comedy and wrestling uh, has that stigma, too. Like, if you're funny, they're not going to take you seriously, which is so weird because the same Tom Hanks that was in Big is the same Tom Hanks that was in Philadelphia. It's the same human being. It's the same performer, you know, so. They got lost in the character. That's how good I was at the character. I convinced them that I actually was that guy. So then when I became Gregory Helms, I had to remind them who I was. And uh, I remember Arn Anderson after one of my, maybe like my third week as Gregory Helms. And I was just going out there either on Sunday Night Heat or something like that and kind of getting into the groove of it. And I came back and Arn Anderson goes, damn, kid. He goes, I forgot how good you were. <laughs> And I was like, and I, I was like, I oh, appreciate it, man. And as I was walking away, I was going, wait a minute. Is that a compliment? <laughs> it was a huge compliment, but at the yeah. same time, it validated what I knew. I was like, these mothers, they forgot who Shane Helms is. They got so wrapped up in the hurricane that they forgot who Shane Helms is. And so I had to remind them. And uh, it worked because at that particular time, Gregory Helms, that was my best in-ring body of work. And I was, I was the best heel in the business that year. Nobody liked me. I wasn't selling merchandise. 
Everybody hated me. I took a beloved character with a very minimal heel turn and made everybody go from loving me to hating me. And those merch sales dropped like a month. <laughs> That's the only part that's like Because that, that Gregory Helms merchandise did not fly off the shelf like the Hurricanes did. And um, But Vince took care of me uh, money-wise uh, because of that. He knew what I was trying to do with that character. I wanted to be a legit heel. I didn't want to be a, a tweener. And there's nothing wrong with tweeners. I think the way tweeners are looked at is a little less now than before, but um, I didn't want to be a tweener. Uh, tweeners have a very important role in this business, but that's not what I want to be. I wanted to be a legit heel. I wanted people to hate me. I wanted them to despise me. And so that's that's what I did with Gregory Elms, and it, it worked for the most part. And with the second reign of your Cruiserweight title, you had 385 days as champion. So in, in you know, a period of time where WWE kind of didn't really give long title reigns, maybe you know, maybe like Cena when he had a long run with the world title, which is different, but they didn't really give too many long title reigns for sure. And 385 days, Cruiserweight title, which they were flip-flopping around like crazy, was pretty mm-hmm. damn impressive. Yeah, yeah, it was... Um... That was fun, you know, but at the same time, I would be wrestling for the United States Championship here and there. And I would team up with somebody and go for the World Tag Team titles. And I'd wrestle, uh, I wrestled Ray Mysterio when he was the heavyweight champion. I wrestled Batista when he was the heavyweight champion. So uh, I was doing a lot. I did more from a visibility standpoint with that Cruiserweight title than, than just about anybody had in the, in the couple of years before me because it had kind of lost its way here and there. Um, you know, the the cruiserweight title is sometimes you're a victim. It's a victim of its own success because if you get successful in that division, they want to take you out. And so I had the conversation with Vince. He told me I'd, I'd outgrown the championship and he didn't mean from a physical standpoint, he meant just add that my, pro- but I was a bigger cruiserweight anyway. Mm-hmm. People don't under people, people think that I'm five, five until they see me in person. And, um, and I'm six foot and they're always shocked by that. So that's always funny. But Vince, uh, like he told me, you know, you've outgrown this and we got to figure, we'll figure something out. And um, I was, I was actually wanting to lose it to Jimmy Yang. I thought Jimmy deserved it. And, um, but they ended up doing something. I, uh, I, I mean, I think Chavo ended up with it and did Hornswoggle and then they kind of just kind of did away with the division at that point. But there was a match when Ray Mysterio was the heavyweight champion of the world and I'm the cruiserweight champion and we're face to face. And it was just, do these weight division titles mean anything in WWE anymore? Because that particular match was just odd. You know, when you got the cruiserweight champion, and I was 40 pounds heavier, uh, half a foot taller, maybe right. more. So it was a, uh, it was strange, but I, I, I super enjoyed that run. And, I, you know, I loved uh, carrying the banner of the championship for that long. So what happened after you had a neck injury? Like what, what kind of happened after? Um, yeah, yeah. Shortly thereafter, uh, I was teaming with Chavo a lot, and there was a lot of good conversations about what me and Chavo would do. And I was hearing a lot of good conversations about uh, me, myself, as a singles going forward, too. And then just, unfortunately, my neck just went out. It wasn't one uh, spectacular moment. You know, I'd been bumping since I was 13, and that was in 1988. Uh, I had my first match in 91, so I'd been, and my style was very bump heavy. And so my body had just taken a lot of, of beatings at the time, and um, one day I go to do push-ups before a match and I can't do but like three or four. And it's like, I'm pushing up as hard as I can. I can't, I can't get up off the floor. And, um, you know, I knew something was odd. Uh, Benoit was, uh, watching me and he came over and he told me, Benoit was the one that told me it was my neck. 
because he had had his, you know, a, neck, a spinal fusion as well. And I tried to constrict my uh, tricep and my tricep on my right arm. I, I think for a lot of guys, it's their left. I'm not sure why, but for me, it was my right. My my trice, my tricep wouldn't constrict and um, or contract. And I was just like, man, what in the world? And I wasn't in a significant amount of pain, not by my standards. Being a pro wrestler, you're beat up all the time and you're just kind of used to being in pain. When you're not in pain, that feels weird, you know, to us. Right, um, right. Yep. And I still wrestled that night, you know, and uh, I think twice the next day because we had a double shot that weekend. And I go get an MRI on Monday. This was in Baltimore. and They did two MRIs on me, one on my lower back and one on my neck. They do my neck first. So I get out, I get a breather, bathroom break. Now I'm going in, I do the uh, the back MRI. And I don't know if you've ever been in the MRI, but you're in this tube, it's loud as shit. It's like 30 minutes. And, claustrophobic too. And by the time I came out of the uh, the second one, they'd gotten the results of the first one and they're ready, they're planning a surgery. And I'm like, what, what, wait, 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 let's slow down here, let's slow. What the hell's happening? And I guess they could tell by the shading that my neck had been broken for about four months. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just, you know, I mean, I, you know, it's what you do as a wrestler, you fight through the pain, not even a wrestler, but as an athlete, you know, I, every MMA fighter is going to that cage injured. Every football player is stepping out on that field hurt. It's just, it's just what we do, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, there was, there was scheduling the surgery. The surgery was going to be in San Antonio, Texas. They were concerned about the, um, turbulence from the flight that anything could snap my neck because my vertebrae were digging into my spinal cord. And if you sever your spinal cord, generally one or two things happen. You either die or you're paralyzed for life. So there's a lot of concern about even the flight. Well, I'm in Baltimore. I can't drive to San Antonio. <laughs> That'll be just as bad. Right. And so we, uh, we did the flight and I had the surgery and it was so bad. They couldn't even write me on TV. They don't want to take any chance about anybody touching me backstage. Nothing. Uh, just I had to go and I talked to Vince and Vince was like, man, this sucks. And he was very you know, nice about everything. And I just disappeared. Just I was there one week and gone for 18 months. Wow. Was that hard kind of rehab and getting back? I mean, neck injury. Oh, yeah. Brutal. That's <laughs> the worst. Yeah. Uh, that was, you know, it just there wasn't a lot of pain after the surgery happened. You know, uh, just as the nerve is rebuilding, you get all this fire in your elbows. Um, but like I wasn't walking around in this debilitating pain, but I was in a neck brace forever. I had to sleep sitting up for a while. And I mean, it was it was really rough. I was never quite the same performer when I came back from that, um, at least not until. You know, I came back from that and then uh, I got released from WWE in 2010. I had a motorcycle accident in 2011 that uh, took me out for a while, too. But in about 2015 and 16 was when. I got back to what I thought was a hundred percent and this guy's, this guy's banging again. And I was on a really great run. And when WWE called me up to be a producer, which kind of sucked. Cause I was like, man, this is a, this might be my last run. I'm in my best shape ever. I need this, you know? So that was a tough decision to even accept that producer gig in that regard. But, you know, I thought it had, you know, this is pre COVID. I thought that was the, the future or what, you know, the best that my future, the best route for my future. And, um, but yeah, that spinal fusion, uh, you're never the same after that, no matter what anybody says. And I guess you and Matt Hardy, I guess you were going to be wrestling right in TNA before WWE scooped you up in it for impact wrestling. Um, what was that? 
Were you and Matt Hardy going to be a team in Impact uh, right before WWE scooped you up? I know you teamed a few times during the Helms Dynasty, but then you kind of broke off from them. And um, I did the Helms Dynasty. Now I don't th- I don't know if we were ever going to team at all because I was doing the Helms Dynasty. Matt Jeff had contract uh, problems with um, you know the the new guys that came in with the Anthem gig, yep. and when their contracts didn't go through, I caught shrapnel heat. I caught heat just because I was their friend, and that's what ended my relationship with uh, with with TNA. It was nothing I did. It was a, you know, that was a, one of those, hey, let's screw over this guy for absolutely no reason deals. Because you're friends with the Hardys uh, yeah. forever. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so there was a reason, but it was no reason for me specifically. Right. Yeah. A little, little immature on their part, uh, for sure. And, and, the, and the guy that did that isn't there anymore. Okay. I do want to say that, and the people in TNA now, the, the in management now, have a great relationship with it. So, um, I do want to the people that the people that made that decision or the person that made that decision is no longer there. Are you working for Impact Wrestling right now? Because I saw, I think I'm pretty sure I saw a picture of you and Demore recently. Uh, we just had a good, we just had a good meeting, and uh, it was, uh, we worked on something together, and oh, okay. that, that's kind of uh, under wraps right now. It'll, it'll be revealed in a couple of weeks, but I can't give it away right now. All right, cool. That sounds good. Now, as far as kind of you in ring and getting back in, in ring, I know WB, you were just an agent producer. Do you want to get back out there and wrestle? You know, maybe once COVID is over? I do want to have a one last little run, uh, whether it's Indies or not, because I didn't have a good goodbye. I wasn't ready to hang it up. And as a matter of fact, when I had my last match in March, April, whatever, of 2019, it snuck up on me because I was just finalizing my indie dates. All the while, I'm still a producer at WWE, but they let me, they were very gracious and, you know, let me finish. So it might have been June, maybe, May or June of 2019. And it snuck up on me and I'm like, oh man, this is my last match. And it wasn't, I didn't make, you know, big deal about anything like that. The company was real gracious to me. And I remember the locker room, they all came out to the uh, ring and big thank you at the end. It was, it was super cool, but I never said retire. I never uttered uttered those words. So there's a couple things I want to do. I think I got a little bit of gas left in the tank. Nothing. Uh, I'm not going to go on a, a you know 87 country world tour or anything like that. But there's a little uh, little left in me, and uh, right now I'm feeling great. You know, I'm blessed and you know feeling pretty good right now. So we'll see. Nice. Now I just want to go back to you said mentioned before that Benoit noticed the neck injury. I just want to ask you about Benoit because obviously you know. And what he did was horrific and everything, but you know, you got guys, guy like Jericho and Chavo who were really close with him and saying, you know, he had some issues, this and that, but he was really a great guy. What was kind of your impression with Benoit? Were you guys close at all? Friendly at all? Or Yeah. Yeah. We were super close. I was actually, uh, because of the neck injury, you know, we were close because we started working together when I was Gregory Helms and that just, Chris was that type of guy. If he had good chemistry in, with you in the ring that helped the friendship. And he just thought I was funny. You know, I mean, I was kind of one of the locker room guys that made everybody laugh and stuff like that. Just I was one of those guys. I tried to keep the locker room kind of upbeat and he appreciated that. And but when I went out with the neck neck injury, Ben would called me as much as anybody, you know, uh, more so than some of the people I thought were going to call me, you know, uh, strangely enough. And I was one of the last people he talked to before um, his uh, his ending there. And it was super tough for me. Super tough for me to wrap my—I still haven't wrapped my head around it all these years later. Yeah, is that just like absolutely shocking that that 
things went down that way. Obviously, no one sees that coming. But did, was there any kind of signs or anything? I mean, he seemed no, no. I mean, I, no. I think once something like that happens, you can look back and uh, I think your mind kind of like, well, he was kind of wild. And I mean, there's a lot of people that are wild. There are a lot of people that say silly shit and stuff like that, but still don't go do that. But I mean, Chris was different. He certainly was different and he certainly had these unique things about him that in retrospect you look back and you go man well that was pretty odd but i think that's just people kind of highlighting things you your mind playing tricks on you there was nothing about me that that thought he was going to do anything like that he he was definitely odd definitely unique but i mean he was also this guy that was super loyal to to his friends like i say he would call and check on me all the time you know and that's the guy I knew. So, um, it's, it's shocking. Yeah, of course it was shocking. It was shocking to everybody, but, um, there was nothing, you know, that in our interactions ever that would have in a million years made me think anything like that would have happened. Is it hard to separate the person from the wrestler? Cause it's, you know, you read the internet like, Oh, he stunk as a wrestler. And it's like, nah, he was pretty much top five worker. You know, he's a pretty much unbelievable. Is it hard for you to kind of separate the wrestler? I don't, the I don't know who the fuck said he stunk as a wrestler, but that person's an idiot. I oh man. I was reading some that. Twitter. I was reading some Twitter things and, uh, Colin Delaney told me, Hey, don't even read these idiots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ignore I mean, these people. Like you got, no, he, he was, a, he was a masterful wrestler. And, uh, uh, everybody knows that everybody that's not just yeah. trying to be a troll or anything like that. But yeah. um, I mean, sometimes it is hard to separate. You see that now a lot of time, you know, especially with the political divide in the country, you'll see, Hey, this, this actor uh, leans, leans right or leans left. That doesn't really have any effect on their performance. You know, uh, Kanye West might be a damn lunatic, but uh, he's still, <laughs> he still has got some banger music out there. You know, I'm not going to not listen to his songs just because he's a maniac. Right. Uh, these days, you know, or, you know, James Woods might be the creepiest guy on Twitter right now, but he still has some really good performances, you know, so yep. uh, I, I can definitely separate the guy, and the, the uh, artist and the performance. For sure. Now, I just wanted to ask about WCW just to go back to it, because I was such a WCW, Mark. There was a period of time where the, where the cruiserweight division was just unbelievable. Then it slowed down for a while. And then I felt when you guys kind of interjected in, the cruiserweight division was kind of put back on the map. Was that kind of your feeling, too? Like, hey, we're going to inject some life into the cruiserweight division? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of exactly what happened. They wanted to in WCW. They wanted to bring in some uh, American talent because they had a lot of luchadors and they had a, uh, some talents from Japan. But for the American side, they had like Billy Kidman. <laughs> that was it. So uh, there was this idea that like, all right, let's bring in some American. Because that, that WCW Cruiserweight division, and Bischoff talks about this uh, quite a bit on his 83 Weeks podcast, and just how big of a, a you know component that was of the success of Nitro was this new thing. Yep. And if it wasn't for what Bischoff did with that cruiserweight division, you might not have never seen guys like a Rey Mysterio and, and stuff like that. And how that really changed the perception of smaller guys in the business. You might not have ever seen me, period. So right. um, all of us owe Eric Bischoff, uh, you know, a, a drink at the bar in that regard. But, um, yeah, you know, the, uh, like all divisions, there's ups and downs. There's, there's been times when the heavyweight title didn't mean shit, you know. So uh, there was time when – when the, the cruiserweight title too uh, might not have, you know, I know there was times like Prince Ikea had it and he was like, what is happening here? You know, and he painted it purple and shit like that. Um, so there was definitely some low moments, but I, I know like I really started to pick back up and um, 
what they were doing with Sugar Shane at the end. I thought, I mean, we were having some of the best matches on the card almost every single night toward the end. Yeah, like you said before, the sensation of innovation, Sugar Shane. Where did that come from? Is that Jimmy Hart kind of creating the music and the dancing and that? Like who, or is that you coming up with that stuff? Because the theme song which, is great too. Which part? Which song? Like the Vertebraker. Like that. that uh, I wrote. I wrote the Vertebraker, and I based it off a, a Wu Tang song clone. Uh, not with ODB, who was a member of the Wu Tang Clan, had a song called "Shimmy Shimmy Y'all." And uh, if you listen to uh, Shimmy Shimmy Y'all, you can hear the vert- or you listen to Vertebrate song, you can hear the uh, the little piano, the same similar piano keys. And I just gave that song to Jimmy and was like, hey, can we make something out of this? And he got a group, I believe they were called Boys in the Bass, Boys with the Bass or Boys in the Bass or something like that out of uh, Tampa somewhere. And he got them to, they had to modify the lyrics a little bit, but they took my lyrics and put it to Vertebrate. That is great. And of course, the three count song, which uh, everybody knows a lot. Is that Jimmy Hart or is that you guys? Too? Jimmy Hart wrote that, except for the parts where I would rap. I wrote my little rap parts, but other than that. So on one of the songs, it has a dual credit with me and Jimmy Hart. The other song uh, was all Jimmy. Nice. Did you like three count? Was that kind of your way in the door thinking that? And then you'll. It was of- just a way in the door. You know, I uh, never grew up on that type of music, didn't like that type of music, but I liked the gimmick once we got into it. And it was a, it was a lot of fun. Now, as we head towards the finish, head towards uh, winding it down here, just like a generic question. I'm just always curious because literally, like you said, you've been wrestling since 91, wrestling in Omega with the the Hardy Boys, you know, starting out all the way in North Carolina with all those guys. Obviously, WCW, Chavo, you and Chavo Guerrero tore it up many, many nights in WCW, especially towards the end in 2001. Love those matches. Uh, do you have some favorite matches? Hurricane, you know, just maybe in your career, some some maybe favorite opponents, something that sticks out? Yeah, there were there were a lot, you know. I know in WCW, my first uh, the ladder match at Starcade stands out. I mean, if you want awesome. start, yep. I mean, we stole the show at Starcade, so that yes. kind of speaks for itself. Yep. Best match in WCW ladder match in WCW's history. Um, that was very special. There was a Super Brawl match uh, after that, maybe a month month after that, and that was the start of the Sugar Shane run. Was that one? So there's a couple moments in that match with Jimmy Yang and Ever Courageous have a shit fest yes which uh <laughs> yes <laughs> and they and they and i was watching my push go down the drain as that was happening i'm going oh my god uh they dug a hole but the the last couple minutes of that match are fantastic and we we made the people forget that that happened and we got back on the right track um that one i was really proud of my first match with chavo uh i believe it was sin i was really proud of that match the match where i won the championship was fine but um, we took the advice of an agent that we shouldn't have and uh, didn't listen to our guts on that. We both have talked about that. But the one before that, like I said, I think it was Sin. That was the better of the ones. Um, sin and Greed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think Greed was the one I won. It's just still fine. It was a good match. But uh, I think I like Sin better, even though I lost. But the match I felt was better. Uh, going, w- going to WWF, uh, there's a match with me and Lance Storm against the Hardy Boys. Maybe it was at one of the No Mercy pay-per-views. Uh, Lance was one of my favorite uh, tag team partners ever. That was I was really enjoyed that. Very proud of that one. You got the Rock stuff, of course. Uh, I remember my match with Paul Burchill, the career versus mask match. I was really proud of that. Um, the one when I had another one with Matt Hardy that was a singles match. That might have been at No Mercy too, a different year. Maybe No Mercy was just my pay-per-view. Um, you know, but I really, I was as Gregory Helms, one of my favorite performances was against the undertaker. And, um, 
And it's more because the directive I got was we, we need the undertaker to, to look awesome. We need the undertaker to be a killer. We need him to look as best as he's ever looked. And I said, like, all right, I got you. And we go out there and it's the first time we ever touch. And for me, the second I come out of that curtain, like you see me selling the undertaker from the second I'm walking down the ramp, I'm selling the undertaker. He's not even at the ringside yet. I'm in the ring just my facials. I'm talking to the referee. I'm upset about this situation because Teddy Long put me in this match. Teddy Long made me go one-on-one. And so, and then when that gong hits and I'm like, man, damn, like just everything about that. That's one that I show to people. And it's like, it's more than just physical. Like your face, you can tell a whole story with your face. And I told, I told the whole story before we even touched. You knew exactly what I was going for here. And we had super good chemistry. And we've talked about this, you know, shortly thereafter when I had the neck injury and was gone and we never really got to do anything again. But we've talked about this since then. I was like, man, we, I wish we could have done more. And he told me, he's like, yeah, me too. He's like that chemistry for the first time ever. You know, it's hard to duplicate. But I went out there and made him look like a monster. He gave me the, what he said was his highest choke slam ever. And then he gave me the tombstone as well, which he didn't do the tombstone on TV all that much. And, but he was like, no, you know, uh, that was good because just taking a choke slam isn't as good as it takes the choke slam and the tombstone to beat me. And it just, I remember coming through the back and it was a standing ovation. They're like, man, that looked like Taker from 20 years ago. And I was like, cool, cool. You know, and he came back and he was super happy with it. And like, if you watch it, you go, Graham, man, Gregory Helms gets killed. Gregory Helms was supposed to get killed. That was what was supposed to happen. But watch the performance. Right. And, and, and so I'm super proud of that one. How is Taker behind the scenes? You always hear locker room leader, most respected guy. Is he easy to uh, deal with behind the scenes? Hey, man, I got to go. Oh, oh uh, sorry. Sorry. I texted you a couple times. So we go, hey, man, I got to go. Uh, no, just I wanted to take my kids in. Um, Taker's the, the best, man. He's a locker room leader. If you need advice, he's there for you. Don't go ask him for advice and then not do the shit, though. He's, you know, he's, just man, he's a leader. He's a, he wants everybody to succeed. I don't. He never felt threatened about his position. You know what I mean. He wanted to elevate everybody. I mean, he's just in terms of a locker room leader. He's the definition of, of what you want. All right. As we finally wrap it up. Uh, sorry, I did mix and miss that <laughs> text for you. Uh, what is uh, like all your uh, social media? Let's uh, Twitter, Instagram, just to get all your all your plugs and everything out there. Oh, at Shane Helmscom is everything on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr. Still, uh, that's where you find me. And I'm I'm the most active uh, pro wrestler on social. Probably overactive if you ask some people, but uh, I was doing it before everybody, and I'll probably do, be doing it when everybody's gone. Nice. I'll be the last one. I'll be the last one on Twitter. Where are we going to see you next? I can't tell you that's still under wraps. It'll be it'll be announced in a couple of weeks though. It should be good. announced. Good stuff. Hurricane Helms, Shane Helms, thank you uh, so much uh, for all the time. Really appreciate it. Oh man, my pleasure, man. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for listening to the two man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.